invite you to open your Bibles once again to Jonah chapter 4. For those of you that are new or newish to Grace Covenant, and perhaps you were here last week, you might be thinking, didn't we just look at this? And the answer is, we did. Uh, but there are some passages in the Scripture that are so pregnant that we aren't able to uh, deal with them all and at one time. They, they have so many different themes. You look at them from different angles, and each of them speaks, and this is certainly one of them. Last week, we looked at Jonah's uh, behavior, the response uh, Jonah had to, to the Lord, uh, to the Lord's revival uh, in Assyria. Uh, today, we're going to look more into why Jonah responded as he did, and next week, we'll look at how God's heart is revealed uh, in his interaction with Jonah. Um, and uh, the implications that it has for us. Uh, but as we look at Jonah chapter 4 again, most of you know the story, very familiar story. Jonah is a prophet of God. God raised him up. God called him. God then sent him to the mortal enemies of his people, to the Assyrians in the capital city of Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to do that, so he ran, not just from the assignment, but we're told ran from God. Knew that He, he knew that disobedience means running from God. And then God providentially raised up a storm, had Jonah tossed into the sea, raised, uh, had swallowed him in a, in a great fish. Jonah had an epiphany, spiritual awakening, uh, and, a, and then was spit up on a dry land, went and preached a half-hearted message, but God brought tremendous revival uh, to uh, the, the people uh, in Assyria at that time. In pick up in, picking up in Jonah chapter 4, we see Jonah's response to God's grace uh, for other people. Jonah 4, 1. We'll read through the end of the chapter. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster." Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, and he sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on his head, on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Uh, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, not only eyes to see the words on the page and understanding of it, but eyes to see ourselves in Jonah and even as we are today. Eyes to see where your word needs to take root and change us. Eyes to see your glory and your grace. 
Not only do we need the eyes, we need hearts to receive it. Hearts to be transformed, to be renewed. And we come and we pray this. And we come to this word with confidence because you have said that your word will never come back empty. It does its work. And that you, O Lord, you are at work within your people. You began a work and you have said that you will see it through till it is completed, until all reach full maturity in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be at work in us now as we consider this word. Speak to us. Shape us. Draw us to yourself. Open us to your incredible love. We pray in Christ, our Redeemer King. Amen. It's still simply amazing, no matter how many times I read through this story. Here we have Jonah on the heels or in really still in the midst of perhaps the, the greatest revival in history, certainly the greatest revival that had taken place in his lifetime, maybe in history up to that time. Jonah was the agent that God used. In other words, Jonah went and God gave him success in his profession, profound, tremendous success. And Jonah is angry with God for giving him success. Theologians marvel over this and they ponder it and they have a question that they ask about the condition. And the question kind of goes like this, what? That's, you look at this, what in the world is, what would make Jonah so angry? Why would he be angry uh, at, at God after experiencing this kind of fruitfulness and success and seeing God at work in, in such amazing ways? You know, we, when we read the story of Jonah, we expect to see a man who is now has a renewed commitment, who's, whose life has been changed and transformed, recognizing that he had experienced grace, not only to be born into a people that belonged to God, but that even when he had rebelled, even when he warranted God doing him in, God dramatically preserved him, renewed him, restored him, and empowered him. When somebody's an experience like that, we expect to see them now ready to grow, ready to, to go. Not only in a sense of amazement and worship before God, but saying, you know, what's next, God? I mean, if, if you can use someone like me and you can do what you have done, then what can you not do? And what can you not do through me? You expect somebody who is dramatically, dramatically different and then here we come to Jonah chapter 4, and we just want to grab Jonah and say, what, what do you have to be angry about? Why is Jonah this messed up? Well, the reason that Jonah is acting the way that he is, the reason that Jonah is so messed up that nobody can miss, is because Jonah has what Theologians and Bible counselors would, biblical counselors would say, is a, a divided heart. And the reason it's important is because it's a very common uh, problem that is true not only of Jonah, but true of every one of us as well. Now, the natural question is what is a divided heart? Well, why don't we start with this, with a, a related but uh, not quite a, an intense of, uh, of a problem, something we're, we're more familiar with, because most of us are probably familiar with uh, the idea of a, of a double mind. 
In other words, we want two things that we can't both can't have both. Both are good. You look at what are your choices? Well, this looks good. I like that. This looks good. I, I like that. And you just can't figure out what you want to do. Sometimes being double-minded is significant. Sometimes it's uh, pretty minor. It's pretty minor at our house when we're on vacation and we're going to eat out. And so what do you want? And here's the conversation that usually takes place, especially if it's only me, Carolyn, and Rebecca. What do you want? I don't care. Good. Well, then I'll suggest, why don't we do this? Then Carolyn and Rebecca say, no, I don't want that. Okay, but what do you want? Oh, whatever. Anything's fine. Okay, well, how about this? No, I don't want that. All the choices just kind of make it very, very difficult. Uh, you know, that's a pretty minor thing, unless we let that play out until we starve. Uh, but um, it could be vacation, beach or mountains. Both are good. Just going to look out one week, what you're going to do. I mean, these are issues of double-mindedness that are, are not that big of a deal, but we all experience them, and, and they are... Uh, and and there, uh, you know, we get it and, until they're resolved. But there's there's a tension that we have. Some of them more are more significant. You know, ladies, guy came and proposed to you. Do I'm going to marry this guy or not? Can I fix him? You know, is it worth it? We're going to wait for a better deal. Um, that's a little more significant about than where we're going to eat, but there's still the, the double-mindedness. I want happiness, and I want this guy. That's what Carolyn had to deal with at one point. What are the chances that they're going to come together? Double-mindedness, we, we all understand. And, and it's so common that James deals with it, and he addresses it in the very beginning of his, uh, his epistle to us. In James 1.8, he, 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 he deals with the issue of double-mindedness. And what's interesting about what James... Uh, writes is to me is is the word that he uses the words as a is a is just a wonderful descriptive word because the Greek word that he uses for double mindedness is is disukos or if you were to spell it out it looks like disykos so if you want to think about it it's you can think about it as di to psychos is of of mind um, or Two psychos, because that's what you feel like when you're double-minded. I just don't know what's going on, and you know, and and depending on the intensity of the issue, you may feel far more psychotic uh, than at other times. But James doesn't just use that descriptive word. James also tells us that there is a problem that's associated with being it. He says that the double-minded man or the double-minded woman is unstable in all his or her ways. In other words, while we always have choices to make, and we have to make that, and there's tension until we make that choices, when sometimes we're faced with either two good choices or two bad choices, and we want until we resolve that tension, we are unstable. We can't live that way with most of life's decisions. And, and so again, we all understand the whole idea of double-mindedness. But what causes double-mindedness? Well, the options cause that, but the problem is not about the options because the options are always there. What, uh, what causes that is our desires, and our desires come from the heart. You see, double-mindedness is a consequence of a divided heart sometimes. Now, sometimes it's just opportunities. Not all double-mindedness is, is bad, but all divided heart causes a double-mindedness that, that, uh, that does cause us to be unstable. And what we need to understand is this. 
is that in, in the Hebrew mind, as, as Jonah is writing, and the Hebrew understanding is that the heart is central to everything. Listen to what counselor and author Paul Tripp says. The Bible describes the heart as the control center of your personhood. It's the center of your thoughts. It's the center of your desires. It's the center of your emotions. It's the center of your purposes and your motivations. And so this, the heart, is what drives you. This is what controls you. And this is what shapes your living. And and so what Tripp is doing is he's reminding us in biblically speaking, in spiritual life, what is considered to be the heart, which is not just the the organ that is in the center of our chest, uh, but the heart encompasses all of the, it's the non-intellectual and the non-physical, but the sense of our our being, of of our, our soul. That's what the Bible refers to as heart. And the Bible says that that is what shapes everything. And we've all experienced it because one of the things we need to recognize is this, is that sometimes it is the heart that shapes our desire, not only our desires, but our decisions because it shapes the way that we look at the facts. We may, some of us more than others, but we we may think that we are being purely rational and looking at the facts, but our hearts are shaping the way that sometimes we add the facts up, we put the facts together. Our hearts, our desires, sometimes they're very subtle. They distort the way that we see things, which is why the double-mindedness leads to being unstable. The heart is the center of everything, but we also need to be reminded of this, as the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, this very thing that is the agent that directs all of the decisions, all of the motives, everything that makes us tick, and it's broken. And it's so broken that we can't really compensate for it. But nevertheless, it still is the instrument that drives us, that causes us desire, causes us motivation, causes us to process our thinking, and it is broken because it's the heart that leads to desire. The desire affects our thoughts, and our thoughts then affect the actions that we engage in. And we see in Jonah chapter 4 is Jonah is a poster child of a man who has a divided heart, and therefore he is double-minded, and it is causing him to be miserable. We see the evidence of this because Jonah, who from the beginning says, I serve the living and true God, he is in communion. He is relating. He is hearing he's from God. He's talking to God. The conversation in chapter 4 is not particularly one that is uh, a pleasant one, but he, he still, he is, he's communing. He's, he's talking with God. He is seeing God at work in him, and he's seeing God through him. And, and so, Jonah would be a good Presbyterian. He understands his primary purpose in life, and most of the time his primary desire is to glorify God. That's what he lives for. But Jonah also has something else in his life, something else that he also desires. And those two things at this point in time don't seem to be reconcilable. And because Jonah has this problem going on within him, we see two things consequently about him in this passage. We see that he's experiencing jealousy and despair, and the two are related. Now, we see the, the jealousy here is 
because Jonah's angry with God for having grace upon the Assyrian people. Jonah is essentially acting like a toddler whose parents just brought home the second child. And Carolyn tells a story when her sister came home, who's two years younger. Carolyn was, uh, it was uh, always a, a daddy's girl. And now her sister came home and she was fine with that until she passed by the room of the nursery and saw her dad looking at her sister in the crib. And then she was angry. And she said that then, whenever her parents weren't looking, she pinched her sister to make her cry. Because she figured if the kid cries enough, they'll send her back. And that's the, and, and so, because who wants the cry baby? I and mean, it just makes life miserable for everybody. She was experiencing toddler jealousy. And Jonah's acting in that same way. I was afraid that you would love them too. I don't want you to love them. You're supposed to love me and love my people. You're not supposed to, to love both of them. And what Jonah is demonstrating is a profound lack of understanding of the covenantal love of our Lord. See, Jonah recognized this, and it's a good thing because Jonah wanted to honor God who entered into a relationship with his people with, with, and created the Jewish people, calling Abraham from among the nations and saying, I'm going to make a people out of you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to make it a great nation, and you will be blessed, and you will be a blessing to all of the nations. And Jonah was understandably and rightfully proud and happy with that promise to be born into that people, to have that relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea. But Jonah misunderstood. Though God was very clear that the point of the covenant people was to bless them, to be a blessing that God loved those people, but he was also going to use those people as part of his redemptive plan to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation into his presence to reconcile uh, the peoples of the world to him, people who had rebelled against him. He was going to bring them back. That was part of it. His, that was the way his plan was going to unfold. That the purpose of Israel was not just to hoard all of the blessings themselves, but to live in relationship with God in such a way that the people of the other nations, people who were chasing after foreign gods, gods who were of their own making, to look and say, there's something different about that people. There's something different about the way that they relate to their God. There's something different about that God that they worship, and in their curiosity, peeking in, wanting to become part of it. That was the purpose that God raised up Israel, and Jonah had misunderstood that. And it's very easy for us to say, what a fool. But the fact of the matter is the church too often lives that same thing. We like to hoard the blessing. We like to think, well, we're God's people. That makes us good. And yet we are often very unaware of the needs of our neighbors and the needs of the nations. That God says, I'm going to use you. And I'm going to bless the nations. I'm going to bring them to me as you take the gospel to them. And Jonah just didn't understand the covenantal love. In this case, the father has the capacity to love his people fully and to love the peoples that are not yet of his fold just as much without diminishing the love that he has for those who are already his. And Jonah experiences jealousy. 
Counselor Dan Allender says this, jealousy is the desire to protect what we have or that we falsely assume we possess and which we fear another may take away from us. It results in hypervigilance and hoarding. Two descriptive words of what we see of Jonah here. Jonah was so vigilant about protecting his heritage and his people. He was so vigilant about loving his country that he refused to do what even God had asked him to do because he was wanting to hoard all the blessings for he and his people alone. He didn't want it to go to these people. Now, we don't know whether Jonah was just totally bigoted and didn't like anybody else. More likely, he just didn't like these people. If it would have been another country, fine. But these people who had attacked, these people who were the enemies of God's people, these people who were a threat to his people. I mean, Jonah had reasonable dislike of them. But in his dislike, he went beyond godliness. He began to look at them and say, I might be a mess, but they're beyond hope. There's nothing for them. It's part of the hoarding of the blessings when we begin to distort our own brokenness and we begin to minimize the the reality of our own sin. And while we may quote the verse, we forget and don't really believe that the wage of sin, any sin, is death and puts us alienated from God. And therefore, you and I and Jonah and everybody else, we all deserve to be God's enemies and we all deserve death. The rest is just a matter of degree. And we don't mind the fact that we receive grace or people that we like have received grace, but when people that we don't like, people that we fear, people that we don't care about. For them to receive grace, sometimes that's hard. Jonah made himself look like a fool. Too often we just stuff it and don't even recognize that's what's going on. But when we see Jonah, we see our own hearts reflected and we need to dig deep. Our actions may not manifest themselves in quite the same way, but the symptoms that are in Jonah are true for every one of us as well. And here's this jealousy, which is now beginning to eat at his heart and his soul and his relationship with God. He may still have some desire to honor God because he knows this is the living and true God. This is the one true God. There is no hope apart from this God, but he doesn't like this God right now. He's not enjoying him. The second characteristic we see in Jonah is that of despair. Again, Allender says this, despair is the utter absence of any hope, a loss of desire in the face of disappointment. Despair looks at the world and notes its emptiness, the utter blackness of death. It concludes that life is not worth it. Despair is on the extreme end of emotional stability. It begins with disappointment, and every one of us has disappointments. We live in a broken world. We are broken. We all have desires. The desires themselves are not necessarily bad. Sometimes we get the desires that we want, and then sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't get the things because it's just not, you know, God has not granted those things to us. 
Sometimes we don't get those things because somebody blocks us from getting those things, which is not outside of God's providence, but we tend to make that distinction. And so we just live with disappointments. Most of the time we disappointed, we, we move on. That's, that's fine. But sometimes disappointment leads to discouragement. In other words, you know, I really want this, but it's just not going to happen. No, that's just discouragement may even lead to depression. Depression is a state of being where you're just constantly focused on that which is negative, that which is wrong. And, 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 and clinical depression is just the inability to put that thought out of your mind. And you can constantly harp on it and dwell on it and dwell on it and dwell on it. That when state of depression, somebody may be aware that there is hope and there's, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. You're just not seeing that light right now and you're just so preoccupied with whatever is wrong with you or with the people around you or with your situation, with the world that you're just obsessed with that and, and you constantly focus on it. But we move to despair when now we don't even believe that there is hope. In fact, the idea that there is hope is too painful because if there is hope, then we need to move toward that hope and it's moving toward the things we hope for that cause a disappointment in the first place. And we, when somebody is in despair, they get so far that they just don't even want to think about hope or they have convinced themselves that there is no hope, life is not worth living. Jonah here is clearly in despair because look at the language that he is using. He says, it would be better for me to die multiple times. Lord, if this is the world that you are creating, if this is what you're doing in this world, I don't want to be in it. It'd be better for me to die than to know that these people might experience your forgiveness. That was Jonah's personal difficulty, his, his personal challenge. But the disappointment, the discouragement, the, he moved to despair because he is actually willing, saying, life's not worth living. Now, what we need to understand about Jonah in this is when a person says it's better for them to die, they're saying that they've lost all meaning in life and they've lost all hope. That there was something in their life that gave it meaning. There was something in their life that gave them purpose, and that something now seems to be gone, so they have no purpose left. And purposelessness is, it leads to despair. What we need to recognize is that whatever that thing was in that person's life is functioning as a god. Now, that thing in our best of circumstances is living a true god. And so when that thing is god, then actually we're in a good place. We are living for God. God gives us purpose. God's created us. We are aware of that, even if we're not sure of all of the details or what step is next. But we know when we're living for God, then we're actually in a great place. But when we are living for something else, what is happening is now we are living for some other God, small g, which is another word for an idol. And listen to what Elise Fitzpatrick writes in her wonderful book, Idols of the Heart, about uh, idols. Idols are not just stone statues. No. Idols are the thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in the place of the true God. Idols cause us to ignore the true God in search of what we think we need. And this is where Jonah is. Jonah's recognizing the true God, and yet there's something else in his life. Whether it is his nationalism, whether it is the, the sense of security for his people and for himself, he, he doesn't indicate here. 
but it's not really necessary. We see the evidence of it. And the absence of that specificity is actually beneficial for us because now we can't too easily dismiss his problem and recognize that every one of us wrestles with the same thing. Every one of us has desires, things that we think that we need in order for our life to have meaning and for purpose and for us to have joy. And when it is present, then everything is great. And when it is gone, like Jonah, we feel like it would be better for us to die. And one of the amazing things is, is that like Jonah, you and I often can have at any given time the desire to serve God and to serve those other idols. The problem comes when we realize we can only serve one and God's pattern is to tend to allow us some rain and we do this, but God always calls his people back and say, to covenant faithfulness and saying, do you love me? Will you serve me above all others? Will you have no other gods before me? Not meaning more important, in my presence. And what happens when God does that in our lives tends to be pretty much the same as happening here with Jonah, even if it's not quite as intense. When God says, you can't have me and a mistress, we get married at God. Perhaps because he's exposed it, perhaps because it's something that we desire, but our hearts are pursuing something else. We turn that into a God. And I look at this and it's really just quite amazing because look who Jonah's talking to. He's talking to God. I have no purpose. I have no reason for the prophet of God who's just seen God at work in him and through him. And he's saying, I have no reason to live. I have no purpose. There's something that is more God to Jonah than God is. And one of the things that's important for us and one of the things I want to challenge you to do now and think about throughout the day and throughout the week is to, to look in your own life and ask yourself, is there anything in your life that you have to have to be happy? I'm not saying the absence of something and sadness. Sadness is part of this broken world. It reminds us that we have a, we're created for something different than this broken world. We're created for a, a, a perfection, for heaven, heaven even here on earth. Those things happen. And so we have that. Spouse, family member, somebody you love dies. We're going to be sad. We're mixed because we may be happy for them, but sad for our loss. That's not the problem. The problem is when somebody says, I will never be able to be happy again. I can't be happy again because I don't have that person or that thing. Sadness in a broken world is understandable, but if we have to have something in addition to God, then that other thing is functioning as our God. <clears throat> is there anything in your life that drives your goals and without that thing, you would be driven to despair? Whatever those things are, whatever that thing is, they are your functional masters. The question is, how do we identify whether we have functional masters? No, in one sense, that's a really bad question, poorly phrased, because, you know, how do we identify if we have, you know, you do, I do. It's, so I guess a better way of putting it is, how do we identify if we have functional masters that are reigning in our lives 
right now. Let me give you two quick tests. First, consider how you respond to unanswered prayer and your frustrated hopes. If there's something you want, you pray for it. Or maybe it's something you think, I know I want it, but it doesn't rise to the level of prayer, which, you know, we, we should be praying about all things. God says, come to me with everything, but you know, most of us have some things that, that, uh, that we want. I don't pray for my school to win ball games. Maybe I should have, but I don't pray for uh, But, um, you know, I want it. I'd like to see it, but, you know, pray for that. Um, you know, but there are other things that I pray for. Either way, it, it doesn't really matter what happens when that doesn't happen, whatever it is in your life, and then you have disappointment. Are you disappointed? And then just say, you know, life's full of disappointments and you move on. You know, and you get over it and you, you just kind of, and, and you roll with life. If that's the case, then good, then you are in a good place and you're healthy because that's what this life, that's what we experience in this life. But if when you don't get what you want or hope for, you find yourself acting or wanting to act like Jonah, then you got a problem because of something that is driving your life. So the first question is, how do I respond to unanswered prayer and frustrated hopes? And then the second question is this, when do I get most down on myself? And some, it even gets really bad. When do I even hate myself? So we need to know this about idols. Idols speak to us as if they are gods. It's amazing because we create them in our own minds and then they speak to us as if they are gods. And an idol says this, if you will meet my standards, you're okay. You're an acceptable person. But if you fail to meet my standards, you're a failure. You're not a worthwhile person. You're a nothing. A lot of our idols are shaped by the culture and the people that we are around. But whatever it may be, I need to be the top student. I need to be a valedictorian. I need to just get good enough grades to graduate. Uh, you know, whatever. If, if you have to have those things, if you don't meet whatever that standard is, some people need the respect of other people. And so they're conformed to that. Whatever those things are, the idols are speaking to you. If you don't meet whatever these standards are, then you're worthless. You're a nothing. What are those things in your mind? What are those things in your life? We also need to recognize that idols say to us, feed me or you will have hell to pay. And here's when idols actually move into areas like addictions. An addiction is somebody, when somebody has an addiction, many times they recognize they have the addiction, but they just don't seem to be able to shake it because the addiction itself is so powerful. Even when somebody says, I wish this wasn't true of me, they just can't because there's either an emotional or sometimes a physiological need to do what the idol is demanding. I've shared this before, but I think it's appropriate is just as an illustration is that I came to this understanding, not just of the principle, but experientially a number of years ago. It was General Assembly, I think it was 1998, whenever Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were doing the home run battle. We had our General Assembly was in St. Louis and we were in downtown St. Louis. Um, actually, the Cubs were in town, and so at least it was one of the evenings. There was nobody at the business. Everybody was watching batting practice between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. But I, 
I was there for a couple of days, and, and at that time, it just it was a habit. I I drank a lot of Mountain Dew, probably you know a bottle uh, every day, and and um, and now I was a few days away from home, and I've been in, in, in downtown, didn't see any stores, and all of a sudden I just start getting this. And then it kept getting worse and getting worse. And I'm thinking, what is it? And then I realized, you know what it is? It's a caffeine withdrawal. My body is addicted to the caffeine and my body is saying, give me caffeine or you'll have hell to pay. And as the headache kept going, I realized, wow, this is not just the physical, this is, there's, there's a spiritual implication to this thing. I have an addiction because the idol is saying, feed me or you'll have hell to pay. And so it was a profound moment for me. Then I went and found some Mountain Dew and I figured I'll deal with it later. But that was... Um, but that's when I came to understand uh, that I had a problem, um, and uh, and so I fixed it later. I don't drink Mountain Dew. That was for me. That's not an indictment on the company. But idols do that, whether it is a sustenance of some type or whether it is an emotional tie or it's an identity, whatever it is, it says, you will feed me or you will have hell to pay. And the idols make threats, and the idols make promises, and the idols shame. And so the question is, when are you most down on yourself? Because that's going to be an indication of the idol that is functioning in your life. And when the idols are functioning, they are rivaling God for our allegiance. And God says, you will have no other gods before me because the idols will always destroy you and they will never deliver on their promises. God and God alone is true and good and our hope. So we look at Jonah and we, we see this guy, we, we need to see ourselves in him, even if he's a caricature, we need to see that which is true of him, how it's true of us, because it probably is going to be the key for our understanding, our greatest disappointments, our, our greatest dissatisfactions. But the question now is, so what do we do with it when we recognize how, how can a divided heart be healed? Or what's the old song, what becomes of the, the broken heart, whatever. Uh, what do we do when we recognize that we do have the divided heart? Whether it's acutely affecting us like it is Jonah, or it's just there and it's a threat to our stability. Let me suggest three things. First is we need to recognize that Moving from a divided heart to a pure heart is a process, not a decision. Our decisions play a part, but we don't just snap our fingers and then move. We need to recognize this, that when the Bible speaks about having a pure heart, it is not, it is not referring to a perfect heart. It's referring to having a single focused heart that we know our identity because we know God. That God is the object of our affection and we recognize, even if it's difficult for us to process and swallow, that we are the object of his affection. That in God, we find all of our hope, not just from God, as a dispenser of good things, but in relationship with him, we find everything that we really need, everything that will truly bring us satisfaction. When we have that single hope, then we have what the Bible refers to as a pure heart. But because we all have this problem of a divided heart, we are constantly in process of uniting the heart and getting our focus back where it belongs, on God and His grace 
that is at work in us as well as through us. And so all of our lives we need to recognize that even if you're in a good place now, you may not be in a good place next week. Or if you're not in a good place now, that doesn't mean that it's in. You can get in a good place, but you may find yourself in a difficult place later on because all of life is a process of aligning our hearts and focusing ourselves on God alone. And we experience these times where we think that we're okay, and then all of a sudden we're shocked to find out that, well, wait a second, how did I end up back here again? A number of years ago, I remember reading an article when I, I lived in Pittsburgh about what they were, uh, about the challenges they experienced when they were building I-79 that runs from Pittsburgh to Erie. Those of you that are connected to Grove City College, probably driven it many, many times. Uh, but the interstate that runs, um, you know, from the part of the interstate that runs from Pittsburgh all the way up to uh, uh, Lake Erie and to, to the city of Erie, uh, they, they realized they needed the road, it would be good, build the interstate, so they started building it. And then they ran into difficulties in some of the, the swampy and the, and the marshy areas uh, that they needed to, to build upon. And as they were attempting to build a bridge, uh, they ended up having a challenge. They, they would, you know, dig down and find solid ground so they could put the foundation on and then they would, you know, put the, the foundation in and then whatever you uh, structural engineers do to, uh, you know, and, and they go home for the weekend. So foundation's in and whatever goes in it and they're ready to go to the next step of the bridge and then they come back on, on Monday and it was gone. And what they found is they, they didn't actually get to the bottom. They got to what's called a, a false bottom. It was hard and it was firm. And so when they put the foundation on and they, you know, it's kind of not, it, it, it seemed sufficient and it seemed good. And so they thought they'd hit the bottom, but they hadn't hit the bottom. And so the, the weight over the course of a couple of days, eventually this, which seemed to be the bottom, gave way and it sunk again. It wasn't until they went through several false bottoms until they found the hard, true bottom that they were able to build the structure and to build a bridge that they were enabled them to complete I-79. And what we need to recognize is our lives are exactly like that. And Jonah's life is like that. You would think that Jonah had hit rock bottom when he was you know, thrown off the boat and in the fish. That would not be one of my better days. And many of us have come to those points where we think, oh, I've hit bottom. I mean, now I just not going to, and then we have now reemerged. We, you know, we, we feel the restoration. We feel hope. We feel some sense of direction. And then all of a sudden, we're discouraged. We're hurting. We're unfocused. We're angry, jealous, despair. Whatever range of emotions that may be in us, but it doesn't seem congruous with somebody who has just experienced grace and renewal. What's happened is, we in this life continue to hit false bottoms. It doesn't mean that we don't truly experience grace in those moments. It means that God, who's at work in every one of us, brings us to those points and then we end up going deeper and we recognize all the more, in a healthy response, is recognize all the more how much we are in need of God's grace, but how amazing God's grace is that he continues to give it time and time again, even when we sink lower, when we thought we finally were on firm foundation. We need to recognize that we have this divided heart issue and we will get some resolution for it, but then we see it pop up again. It's because God is at work in a process and he's taking us until when we hit our bottom is when we rise highest. When we are truly depending on God and see his glory. The second thing we need to recognize this is that God tends to take away our comforts 
to help us to see the truth about ourselves and about him. And God provided Jonah with the vine to comfort him, and then he took it away. Now, sometimes people might think, well, does this make God a bully? I mean, does God just give things and then take them away? Well, you know, a bully might do that. But the difference between the God and the bully is this, that God is himself and he alone is our hope, our satisfaction. When we appreciate the gifts that he gives and then our appreciation moves to we need the gift, we need the thing, we need the part of creation, and that becomes the object of our focus and of our affection that begins to rival, that becomes the idol, the Lord takes it away so that we will recognize what's going on in our hearts, so that we will recognize, again, it's the part of the whole, whole false bottom thing that the Lord is doing so that we will come and find our full hope in God and in good God alone. It's an expression of his love because no one will love you like God does. And to pursue other gods leads to disaster and leads to, dis uh, to danger in our lives. And finally, we need to recognize that our hearts are only healed by grasping of God's radical grace. See, the gospel is the only power that is able to topple the false gods that we continue to crank out in our lives, those gods that, those things that, that drive us. And sometimes they are good things, and sometimes they seem even to be godly things or in line with godly things, but we jump track. We jump from focusing on God and, and that fellowship we have with him to focusing on that thing that God wants us to do or that we can do. And grace is a whole new approach to life. See, the psychologist would say this is you have bad feelings in your head, kick them out of your head. Don't deal with them. Don't dwell on them. Don't process them. You know, it's a bad brain pattern. It's not entirely wrong, but there's, it doesn't help. It doesn't put anything there. The moralizers would say this, of course you're unhappy because you're not meeting, you're not following the rules that you believe you need to follow. You've not obeyed the rules. You're not going to achieve what you think you should achieve. Then you're not going to be happy. So, you know, make this decision. Start behaving. And again, it's not wrong. But it's incomplete. And it can lead us down the wrong paths. It can lead us to begin to trust in our efforts and thinking that, you know, we are the master of our fate, the captains of our ship. And as long as we do what we think is right, then we will find happiness. And that is permeating our culture right now. It's known as expressive individualism. I want people to like me, so therefore I'm going to declare that I must be good in myself and you got to like it. And it causes people to do foolish, foolish things because they are the center of the world. They're the captain of the fate. And so we just feel this need. The gospel topples all of that and it reestablishes it because the gospel is, is this. You are a mess, but you're loved. You choose certain things because you think that those things will make you acceptable. But our deepest desires 
for success and for our own efforts are often only to become our own saviors. And everything that we really want can only be found by God's grace in Jesus Christ. And the gospel then says, here's how you were made after the image of God. Here's your nature. You're a mess. But I love you. And I have redeemed you. And if you will receive my grace, my grace will be at work in you. And the process of renewal will begin. And God says he will see it through until the end. Until we finally hear God calling us by the gospel. And you hear God saying this, aren't you tired of being driven by whatever it's driving you? If you come to Jesus, God says, if you come to Jesus, I will accept you now. And God says, my opinion is the only one that really matters. So we look at Jonah and we should see a reflection of ourselves, which is not a picture we want to see, but it's a picture that we need to see. We see a man who has a divided heart and we see the effect that that has in his life and it's not a life that any of us wants. But all of us are susceptible to it. The remedy for that is to return our attention to God and to the grace that he gives to us in Jesus Christ. Just as Augustine said, hearts are restless until they find their hope and they're all in thee, O Lord. May God grant us hearts to hunger for him. May we find the satisfaction that he promises and the way he can deliver. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you this day and pray that you would speak to us using the intellect you've gifted us with to be able to process the words, let us look past the intellect to the heart that is actually shaping our ability to think. Lord, search us and see if there's anything that is messed up, anything that is driving us apart from you. And reveal it to us. Grant us the gift of repentance and the joy of faith and the understanding, the hope, and the expectation that you did begin a good work. And all who believe, you who began a good work, and you will see it through to the end. Lord, we have joy in the moment, but joy incomprehensible before us. Let us cling to this. This I pray in Christ our Redeemer King. Amen.